General Douglas MacArthur said, Build me a son, O Lord, who will be strong enough to know when he is weak, and brave enough to face himself when he is afraid. One who will be proud and unbending and honest defeat, and humble and gentle in victory. Build me a son whose wishes will not take the place of deeds. A son who will know thee, and that to know himself is the foundation stone of knowledge. Build me a son whose heart will be clear, whose goal will be high. A son who will master himself when he seeks to master other men. One who will reach into the future, yet never forget the past. And after all these things are his, I pray. Add enough of a sense of humor so that he may always be serious, yet never take himself too seriously. Give him humility so that he may always remember the simplicity of true greatness. Then I, his father, will dare to whisper, I have not lived in vain. So, fathers, pray for your sons, your daughters. Ask for God to build them into the men and women that he wishes them to be. And fathers, grow, even if your children have left the nest, grow into the fathers and grandfathers that he has called you to be. All right, turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 8, or excuse me, Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 50. Luke chapter 7. I want to give you a message this morning from this text titled, Loving Much. Loving Much. This to me is a fascinating text, and I've heard it preached uh, a few times in much the same way. But we have an introduction of three characters. A Pharisee, Jesus, and a woman. In this text you have the outpouring of the woman's love and action. You have a dialogue as Simon the Pharisee judges wrongly. You have a parable. Another dialogue as Simon judges correctly. And then the outpouring of the woman's love in retrospect. And then the conclusion of the Pharisee, Jesus, and the woman. And at the center of these seven scenes is the parable as as the climax. What we need to understand from this text this morning is that those who grasp the full reality of the forgiveness that Christ has given for their sin will love Christ more. And loving Christ more is displayed by identifying with his suffering. I trust you'll see what we mean by that as we look in this text here. But in order to unpack this passage, we first need to see that this woman had received already the redemption of Christ for the forgiveness of her sins through Christ's message of grace for sinners before this story even opens. She was coming to this house having already been forgiven to express her heartfelt thanks for the forgiveness she had received. I want you to see this morning, as we look into this text, that there is, first of all, an experienced forgiveness. An experienced forgiveness. Notice that this woman, in verse 36, has learned that Jesus is in Simon's home. It says, one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. Jesus would eat with him. 
And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And look at verse 37. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. She has had prior contact with Christ. She knows Him. She knows who He is. She has learned that Jesus is in Simon's home there in verse 37. Notice also that when she learns that, uh, that Jesus is being entertained there, she comes to this home bringing with her perfumed oil in an alabaster jar. Very expensive perfume. So she comes prepared with a gift of thankfulness. It is not on a whim. Notice also in verse 47 and verse 48, the phrase there where Jesus says, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Now that phrase, are forgiven, is a perfect tense in the original language, which is best translated, her sins have been forgiven and will continue to be so. It is the idea of a past action that continues. So her sins have already been forgiven and will continue to be forgiven. In verses 47 and 48, Jesus' pronouncement to her. Notice also her gestures toward Christ. These gestures of, of, uh, of extravagance here. These gestures are, are not to gain her repentance, but they are the result of repentance. Of the truth, she has been forgiven. She is not entering Simon's house on a quest for forgiveness, you need to understand this morning. But she is entering because she has been forgiven, and that's crucial to understand this morning. Jesus says, in fact, in verse 47, that it's for this reason she has shown much love. So this extravagant gift, this identifying with Christ with her weeping, is for the reason that she has been forgiven. That is why she's showing much love. So her great love to Christ proves that her many sins have been forgiven. And this is her reaction to God's forgiveness. She is not forgiven because she treats Jesus better than the Pharisee Simon, as we'll see in the parable. But she treats Jesus better because she knew it was through Him she has been forgiven. She has been forgiven an enormous debt and is therefore showing an enormous love and gratitude. And Jesus' declaration in verse 48, He said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven, or properly translated more literally, Your sins have been forgiven is a public confirmation of what she already had known and experienced, and what had prompted her with her loving actions as one who had been forgiven. So I want you to see this morning that if we are to love Christ, we need to experience His forgiveness. We need to see our sins against the backdrop of the holy and righteous God, whose bow was aimed at our hearts for our sins. We need to see what our sin really is in God's eyes. And she did. She had been forgiven. She had met Jesus before this story begins. And Jesus had rescued her. But I also want you to see this morning 
Not only does Jesus welcome sinners because they've experienced forgiveness as they experience His forgiveness. But I want you to see in this text what sometimes we can miss. Her display of love. If we're to love Christ, the second thing we need to understand is that in order to love Christ, sinners welcome Jesus. Sinners welcome Jesus by sharing in His suffering. Let me explain to you what I mean. In this dinner scene, I want you to notice what did not happen. Now, to us in our Western culture, we might not pay a whole lot of attention to this. But every culture has a protocol for welcoming guests. And in the Middle Eastern culture, hospitality was a very important thing. Even if someone was not your friend, but they, but they, were, they, were, they were at your house as a guest, you were, to, you were to express sincere hospitality to them. In our culture, maybe our protocol for welcoming guests is something like this. I'm just showing you there is a protocol. Say, hello John, it's good to see you. Right? Would you like to come in? Can I take your coat? Would you like to sit down? Can I get you a cup of coffee? How have you been doing? Etc. There's a protocol we tend to go through. Right? Even more so is true in the Middle Eastern culture. You may remember in Genesis 18 when... Those three visitors came down to Abraham. Abraham's had these unexpected guests. And the manner he shows hospitality, he has water for their feet, he has a generous meal prepared for them, etc. But in Jesus' day, that culture dictated at the minimum expected for a guest in hospitality was first of all the kiss of greeting, like our handshake today. Water for their dusty feet, and some olive oil, which everybody had in their home, which acted like, like a soap to wash their feet and then to anoint themselves with. And none of these expected three courtesies were shown to Christ. In fact, you look in, uh, in verse 36, it says, The Pharisee desired him that we do eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Nothing happened. None of these courtesies are extended to Christ. Jesus had the full right to leave angrily, understanding he was not welcomed here as a guest, but an object of ridicule. In fact, we find out later on in the story the reason why Simon has him. He is putting Jesus here up on the stand, and he is cross-examining Jesus to mock him. Jesus had the full right to leave. But Jesus enters, and he reclines... And he faces a humiliation. Notice it says in verse 36, he sat down to meet. They would recline around a table. Three sides of a table. And then the fourth side of the table would be open so the, the, uh, the host could, could deliver the food there to the table. So he's laying on his side, reclining, as they would in that culture. But I also want you to notice the uninvited guests. Sure, Jesus was an invited guest, obviously treated in a horrific manner in that culture, and it's hard for our minds to get, get around that here, because we're not used to that, that depth of, of hospitality and understanding of that protocol. But notice this uninvited guest, because it says in verse 37, Luke says, And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner. 
Behold, he says, he's looking saying, look here, what happens now? Behold. This woman who probably had inquired as to who was entertaining the guest Jesus, the rabbi Jesus, this traveling rabbi, this Messiah who had forgiven her of her sins. She's told the answer, apparently, because it says when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, she's told the answer, <coughs> and she goes to the house with this perfume that she's brought with him, probably to anoint his hands and head, in addition to what Simon should have already done. This is an expression of her, of her love for him. She does not go into this planning to wash his hands and his feet. That would be understood by default to be the, the, uh, the responsibility entertainer. She's obviously brought no water with her and no towel. Simon should have done that. And when she sees the rudeness and hostility to Jesus as these normal essentials were denied him, she is horrified. In fact, she breaks down very quickly in grief. And she compensates for Simon's humiliation of Jesus. Very blatant and obvious humiliation. And she is upset over the rudeness that Jesus had faced as a guest. She weeps. Here is she who has been captured by his forgiveness. She's called a woman of the city, which had a connotation of perhaps she may have been a former prostitute. Well known for uh, her way of life. Christ had forgiven her. She wants to go celebrate. She finds out where Jesus is. She brings this alabaster <coughs> jar of precious ointment. She's going to use that to anoint Jesus in addition to what Simon should have already done. And woe to her surprise. Jesus is still laying there with dusty feet. They're going to share food with him. But Simon has an ulterior motive. She's horrified. She's been captured by his forgiveness earlier. And as, her, as she catches the gravity and the hostility of them toward Jesus, her tears splash down. She knows what she will do, though. And she approaches Jesus, and as her, these tears are splashing down from her eyes, she, and she is weeping, first she, she pours the expensive ointment. Verse 38 says, And stood at his feet behind him weeping. Jesus is reclining there as he did at the, at the table, and says she began to wash his feet with the tears. Those tears that began to, to splash down, Simon wouldn't wash his feet with water or a towel. She has no water. Her tears are wet. He takes her tears as they splash down on Jesus' feet. She has no towel. She wipes those tears off her feet with the hair of her head in verse 38. And she kissed his feet. In those days when you wore sandals everywhere, feet were not, and today... Our feet are obviously not an esteemed portion of our body, are they? If you kiss somebody's feet, that was an extravagant way of displaying your worship of that person. Your feet were so despised because they were always filthy. You can imagine stepping in streets that had donkey dung and everything else in them. 
Your feet were so despised that one of the things you would do to make your enemy uh, who had been defeated even, even further humiliated was to put your feet on his neck. She kisses his feet. In verse 38, she, says, she anoints them with the ointment. She pours that expensive perfume on his feet she had brought with her. Simon should have done with the olive oil. Her tears are not for her sins, I don't believe. For she has been forgiven. But she is identifying with the public humiliation of the one who is now the most precious to her. For this gift of forgiveness to her. Her heart is torn. It is in anguish as she sees the one who has set her free from the burden of guilt of her sin by his redemption now being publicly humiliated. And she joins in the suffering of Christ as one who's been cast outside the gate, outside the camp. She is swept into His suffering as she identifies with one who is rejected, who is despised, who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely she could identify with His suffering. She's described as a woman of the city and a sinner, well known for her choices, and certainly having faced much rejection and spite for her deeds. And this one is the innocent one, who she has met, who has forgiven her for her sins. And he is treated as the wicked one, and deliberated humiliation and shame. As her tears splash down on his feet, she does something absolutely forbidden in Middle Eastern culture. Tradition. Something offensive. She lets down her hair. And she touches Jesus with it as there is no towel. You see, keeping your hair covered as a woman in that culture was a sign of piety. And uncovering it there was reserved only for your husband and the privacy of the bedroom. She has knelt at Jesus and done this act. And she totally spoils the Pharisees' game here of humiliation of their guest. So what will Jesus do about this woman? Well, Simon, verse 39, Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, Simon, he spake within himself. So Simon reveals his perception of Jesus. Simon uh, reveals that uh, if you were really a prophet, you wouldn't allow these shameful things to happen that this woman is doing. Simon already has an agenda. He already believes Jesus is not the Messiah. He's not a prophet of God. And this is just further proof in his mind. Because he says, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what man or woman this is that toucheth him. For she is a sinner. Well, Simon reveals his perception of Jesus. He expresses disdain at the scene. That's his response. This woman should not be accepted by one who claims to be a man of God because she is not accepted of God. She is a sinner. His pronouncement in verse 39. And Simon does everything that Jesus says is not a mark of his disciples in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. This woman's debt could never be canceled in Simon's mind. Simon will focus on her mistakes. Look at Jesus' response. Verse 40, Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. 
And that is an expression, as a rabbi would speak to another, that is an expression uh, that, is, that, that, is, that is very direct. And it, it, it would be something like, uh, um, uh, if I were teaching a class and someone was acting up, I would say, so-and-so, I need to see you after class. And Simon has no choice but to say, Master, say on. Jesus' response. He violates the social taboo. He accepts this woman's offering. And he interprets her act and Simon's action in lack of hospitality with a parable. So here Jesus is going to interpret the scene that has unfolded. And here's the climax of the text. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. A pence would be your day's wages. So 50 days of wages, a few thousand dollars, and 500 days of wages, almost two years of wages. And when they had nothing to pay, so they have a debt, that's what they have in common. One has a bigger debt, one has a smaller debt, it's both a debt. Neither of them can pay the debt, that's important to understand. Even though this debt was smaller and this debt was more large, they both could not pay the debt. When they had nothing to pay, he, the creditor, frankly, forgave them both. Imagine your bank coming to you and saying, your mortgage is cleared. Imagine what that would do to you. Your debt is gone. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most. I'm going to read this parable again, but add a little commentary with it. Okay? There is a certain creditor, God which had two debtors, Simon and the woman. The one owed 500 pence, the woman. The other 50, like you, Simon. And when they had nothing to pay, both you and the woman, Simon. He, God, frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, you can see his... His reluctance here. Uh, he says, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. The idea of suppose isn't him coming to this conclusion after hard thought, but it's more as if, um, okay, I, okay, I give up. You know, Obviously the one who's forgiven most. And Jesus corrects his, uh, uh, um, affirms his judgment in verse 43. He says, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turns to the woman and said unto Simon, and now notice the connection here with the hospitality and the humiliation of Jesus that he brings out. Simon, seest thou this woman? I entered in your house and you didn't give me the basic reception of hospitality. I gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with tears. And wiped them with the hair of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, kiss of greeting. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. She feels she has to make up for Simon's lack here. Compensate. My head with oil thou didst not anoint. But this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many are forgiven, or have been forgiven, she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. 
He says in her, thy sins are forgiven or have been forgiven. And the response of the people there, they sat at meat with him, began to say within themselves, who is this that forgiveth sins also? He's going to say he can do this too. And he said to the woman, thy faith has saved thee, go in peace. You see, Simon and his crew were cross-examiners. They saw a true prophet and a man of God as one who avoided sinners like they did. The best way, by the way, to avoid Jesus is to avoid the people who need Jesus. Jesus shows that their issue is that their supposed goodness really was more disgusting than the scene that they saw unfolding that they thought was disgusting. Simon will focus on her mistakes. Jesus will focus on her forgiveness He granted her that expressed itself in love through shared suffering. She identifies with Jesus in His humiliation and suffering. That's important for you to understand. So I want to ask you these questions. Have you been grasped by the gravity of your sin? So well, I was saved at the age of five and you know, I don't have this big flashy testimony. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are under the wrath of God. Have you been grasped by the gravity of your sin? The deserved wrath of God that was rushing upon your sin and rebellion against His loving rule? A debt of sin against God that you could never repay? You could never dig out of? And have you turned to the one who took that great debt that you owed and hoisted it on his shoulders and stood between you and the fiery wrath of God and melted under the heat of God's anger for your sin and died on the cross forsaken and alone and rejected for your sin though he was innocent? Have you by faith been forgiven much as He took your sin and placed it on His account and put on your account an eternal credit of pure, righteous obedience that He earned in its place? And have you been raised with Him as one who was spiritually dead? And is now alive in Him, your living King. Are you a Simon? The Simon of Luke 7 and the individuals in Luke 6 who simply point out mistakes of others. Have you been forgiven much? And therefore love Him more and enter into His suffering rejoicing in trials that you, as the, uh, as the apostles in the book of Acts, have been counted worthy through the exchange merit of Christ in your behalf to suffer with Him? Or are you a good person who avoids Jesus and needs no forgiveness? I find it interesting that Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, when he talks about being found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which which is of the law. That's Simon. Those are the Simons. But that which is through the faith faith of Christ, the righteousness that is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, 
is on that basis. This is a wonderful illustration here of this of this parable. It's on that basis that Paul will say that famous verse in Philippians 3.10, that I may know Him. And the power of His resurrection, is that all he says? And the fellowship of His sufferings, the sharing in with His sufferings, His humiliation, His reproach, being made conformable unto His death. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says about Moses? That he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater far than all the treasures of Egypt. You remember what our Lord will say very soon in Luke 9? That he that comes after me must deny himself and take up his soft, lazy boy and big TV, right? The instrument of torture, the electric chair, the cross, and follow me. Sharing in the suffering. You see, it's easy for me to say, I love Jesus. It's one thing to identify in his suffering, to see his purging and pruning and, and, and melting process of, of scraping off the dross and, and making me pure and conforming to the image of Christ and forming Christ in me. And delighting in that. Boy, isn't that a sign of maturity? The disciple of Christ, who can say they rejoice in trials, as Peter tells us to, and James tells us to, that's one who's realized they've been forgiven much. And Christ has counted them worthy as a joint heir with him, to not only live with him, but to suffer with him. And the rewards of that are tremendous. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what situations you're facing. But I want to tell you, if you can understand that anything that happens to you is, first of all, better than you deserve because you've been forgiven much and Jesus didn't have to. Be perfectly just and letting that arrow go or cutting the string that holds, holds you over the pit. But perfectly just to do that. But Jesus shares His mercy and grace by taking all that upon Himself and cutting the string for himself and releasing the arrow on himself. Can you maybe face the trials and tribulations and persecutions in your life understanding that that is a sign of my union with Christ and Christ is using that in my life to make me more like Him and I can rejoice in that. doesn't mean I go around with a big smile and a grin. But it means I can see the eternal perspective of what God is doing. This woman was identifying with Jesus by <coughs> suffering and his humiliation. She knew what it was like to suffer outside the camp. And she saw Jesus suffering outside the camp. And she knew that this was the one who had redeemed her. He had captured her heart. She knew there was nothing else she could do but to pour out her love at His feet. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. You love Jesus. Those who love Jesus realize they've been forgiven much. They've experienced forgiveness and they share in His sufferings. Let's pray.